Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd like to begin by talking about your background a bit. Tell me about your background and FIRE, what you folks do over there. <laughs> sure. Okay. So um, my uh, I am, what, five generations separated from serfdom on my Russian side. Um, the uh, We were, I remember one time asking my dad, uh, since I knew we were serfs, uh, if my you know, great, great, great grandfather of our family were onion farmers because Luke is the Russian word for onion. And I remember him laughing, saying, oh, no, my son, we were owned by a man named Lukian. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not sure if that's totally true, but it definitely made an impression on me. Um, so uh, my dad's older than most people my age. He was, um, So uh, my grandfather actually died in 1932. Um, which kind of blew people's, you know, when I was a kid, they're like, I, they couldn't even understand what I was talking about. It's like, how is that even possible? So my grandfather, we, we were serfs who made good. We were uh, people who were later murdered by the millions uh, dubbed kulaks, which by the way, isn't really a thing. Um, and uh, so my grandfather actually fought the Bolsheviks, um, well, fought fought the Germans and we lost and um, in World War One, and then fought the Bolsheviks, and we lost. And like like a lot of the poorer Russians, they went to um, uh, what was not actually quite then called Yugoslavia. Um, so my father was actually born in Zagreb in 1926, um, and his life is just awful. Like um, his dad died when he was six; he was given away. Um, you know, he was an orphan in Yugoslavia in the 1930s. It was just an absolute horror horror show. Um, meanwhile, my mother is ethnically Irish, grew up in Britain and thinks of herself as British. Uh, so, you know, on the one side, on the British side, we have a kind of, you know, nice story about, um, you know, a, a, a immigrant girl learning to, you know, be more polite <laughs> um, in an exaggerated way. And on my dad's side, it's this horrifying story about totalitarianism and about uh, Nazis and, 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 and Stalinists on either side of them. Um, so one thing that, that really being, you know, an, an immigrant kid, you know, first generation kid, um, is it really makes you appreciate what's different about the United States and both from the British side of my family, um, and, and certainly from the Russian side, you know, the, we never took freedom of speech for granted. Um, and I grew up in a neighborhood, I'm, I'm from Danbury, Connecticut. Um, and I, but I had a train running through my backyard and I grew up with all the other kids who were also first generation kids, you know, from um, everywhere from uh, Peru to Korea to Vietnam to um, uh, and, you know, even the, the white kids were from the American South, which would seem much more foreign to me um, than anywhere else. And um, because of that environment, we all we all had a deep appreciation of freedom of speech about it being a sort of special American uh, characteristic. Uh, so I went to undergrad. I was a student journalist that got me even more radicalized about freedom of speech because people come into your office every day and demand that you censor so-and-so or fire who's it, what's it. Um, and then, <laughs> sorry if the story was getting a little too long, um, in, in, in my last year of, of uh, undergrad, uh, Congress passed something called the Communications Decency Act, where they tried to literally ban indecency on the entire burgeoning internet. Um, which is as laughably unconstitutional as it sounds. Um, so I decided to go to law school. I, I decided that I wanted to specialize in First Amendment law. Um, I, I got into Stanford 
um, which was definitely not a kind of place I thought real people went to <laughs> as a kid. And um, I specialized in First Amendment law. Um, I took every class that Stanford offered in in, in First Amendment uh, until I ran out. And then I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, my, uh, my own uh, my own independent study. I, I worked at the ACLU of Northern California. I mean, I put all my eggs in the free speech basket. Um, even the other stuff that I did, which was human rights law, was all around international free speech rights. So um, people thought I was a little crazy because like, there aren't many jobs when it comes to freedom of speech. But my superpower is until I was probably about 11, you know, we were bottom quartile in terms of like income. Um, so I, I was like, I, I was fine being poor. Like I, I could totally handle it. So like when I when I found out that going the nonprofit route meant that I'd be making $50,000 a year, like whereas that sounded like, you know, a pittance to my, my Stanford Law School. I'm like, you know what kind of people make $50,000 a year? Rich people was kind of, was kind of my feeling about it. Um, so I, I, I got recruited um, by this brand new organization called the Foundation for Individual Rights in, uh, in Education at the time to be the first legal director. Um, it, it, FIRE had been founded in 1999 by Alan Charles Kors and Harvey Silverglate, and Harvey uh, found me in this case. And this is actually something that, that um, uh, Evan Mandries, who, who's at John Jay as well, wrote this wonderful book called Poison Ivy that talks about some some of the things that rich kids and uh, rich kids and poor kids know that, like something that rich kids know and poor kids don't um i had to be told as well that going to like office hours for like the professors you really like is important and them knowing knowing you and your passion for a topic actually matters uh, and he points out that you know psychological you know survey and i felt exactly the same way that almost felt like well i wouldn't want you that feel like cheating you know like, like essentially you you should just like me for the grades I get. But, you know, I got this advice and I, and I took it seriously. One of the reasons why I ended up at FIRE um, was because when Harvey went to the, the then dean of the law school, Kathleen Sullivan, um, she remembered me as being like the, this unusually passionate uh, free speech student. Um, and she recommended me by name. So I learned my lesson. I, I, I went and talked to my free speech hero at the, at the school and it really made a difference for, 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 for my career. So I've been with FIRE. I originally was legal director. I became president in 2005. Um, and now we are the foundation for individual rights and expression. And we defend free speech, um, not just on campus, but all over the country. You mentioned some words, right? Individual rights, expression, right? Several of the words that make up FIRE. Mm -hmm. Those words mean the same thing that they perhaps meant 20, 30 years ago, not just to the general public, but perhaps to the legal community, academics in general. Yeah, um, I mean, for me, I, I, I still consider myself a political liberal. Um, I sometimes make the distinction between being a political liberal and, and, a, and, a, and a progressive. Um, but when I was coming up, particularly among, you know, more working class kids, less less academic kids, um, free speech was synonymous with what it meant to be on the left. Um, you know, growing up in the, I don't know how, how old you are, but you look a good chunk younger than me. Um, that growing up in the 80s, you know, like that, like one of the defining characteristics of being a liberal was being unapologetically um, pro-free speech. And it was absolutely that way um, when I got to 
uh, undergrad, and then I was kind of surprised to see that there was a move towards what would be considered kind of enlightened censorship on campus. And that got much worse when I got to Stanford, um, that, that essentially there was like this realignment um, on the left around free speech skepticism as opposed to free speech support. Um, and that came as a real shock to me. Um, I called it, I, I call it the slow motion train wreck because when I was at the ACLU in 1999, I could already see the writing on the wall that essentially um, the, the valence of freedom of speech was changing on campus. And to be perfectly cynical about it, but also you have to be cynical about it to be somewhat accurate. It really does work a lot like in the 60s, you know, there, uh, there's a problem in the United States. We, we, uh, my, my dad noticed this when he came to the, this country in the 1950s, is that we don't distinguish between um, like hippie libertarians on the left and uh, people who would in, in Europe more, you know, happily call themselves Marxists, which wasn't a bad word in, in, in Europe. And but the problem is in the 60s, you had a group of people who called themselves liberals, uh, who were like hippies with a little bit of libertarian thrown in there. Um, and people who were like Herbert Marcuse, who wanted, you know, the government to have more power so it could create a perfectly free society on the, you know, uh, based on um, creating perfect equality by people who could take away your free speech rights. And this was an argument he was making in 1965, like a year after the start of the free speech movement. You have this, you know, uh, utopian person basically arguing that free speech is the problem. And when the political valence of campus went from being, say, like two to one liberal to conservative to a now it's a crazy super majority. I mean, like there are literally departments. I mean, right, right now I'm currently actually in, in, in a little bit of a fight with my old alma mater, Stanford Law School. There's like, as best we can tell, there's one conservative professor in the entire law school um, who, 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 who admits that. And the problem is when you actually when you um, go from being, uh, you know, uh, when you become the supermajority, there's a tendency to start seeing freedom of speech as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And this is very typical. This is a, a temptation of power, essentially. And I've watched this, and th th that's why I called it the slow motion train wreck, because you could see this political valence shift happening, but it mostly came from going from being not in power to being um, to being dominant, to being part of the supermajority. And I will continue to fight. I, I still consider myself, you know, left of center. I will continue to fight to make sure that, you know, Democrats don't lose um, their commitment to freedom of speech. But I am more pessimistic about the political future of freedom of speech at the moment because I've watched the right get worse about it. Um, uh, again, like I, there was a moment, you know, Conservatives in the 80s and 90s definitely had the moral majority um, uh, social conservatism, but then there was at least a bit of a libertarian movement kind of on the right. And meanwhile, on the left, you know, free speech had always been so um, uh, so venerated. And now, particularly in the last five or six years, it seems like both sides are trying to outdo each other on how much they can censor. You know, they only they they both agree about censorship. The only question is who they think should get censored. So, which makes organizations like fire all that much more important um but honestly i would if someone said you know like you can uh, uh i'll trade you, you you'll have to go find another career but freedom of speech will be safe for the next 50 years in the united states without you i would take that in a in a heartbeat you know um 
but you know, I guess the only plus side is that my my job isn't boring. And I guess that's related to this term that you and Jonathan Haidt termed safetyism, right? This yeah. is where I guess that leads to, right, kind of this inclination to protect what's yours and not infiltrate what's yours with what's on the outside. And in that book, uh, The Coddling of the, the American Mind, um, you had discussed these three untruths, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about those. It's so important to the arguments here. Sure. Yeah. That, so coddling came out of me getting uh, suicidally depressed in 2007. Um, and it was, and to be clear, part of it was just the sheer exhaustion of of the of being in the culture war all the time. You know, people love you um, when you're on the on when you're supporting someone they likes opinion, but as soon as you defend the same principle for someone they don't like, it it can be, if you don't have like the right group of friends, you know, it can be really exhausting because they'll they'll hate your guts um, on the very next case, even if from a principled standpoint, it's exactly the same. So I got very depressed. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I don't live in Philadelphia, as I also, you know, it's not really my town. Um, and while I was recovering um, from this, you know, this very, the worst depression I ever had in my life, I was studying cognitive behavioral therapy and um, the practice of CBT. And, and, and you can know this stuff intellectually, but it doesn't do you a bit of good unless you actually sit down with your own thoughts, you know, a couple times a day and try to get in the habit of talking down your own thoughts, um, which basically means kind of like everybody has what are called cognitive distortions. Um, th those are sort of mental exaggerations that tell you you're uh, you're fragile, that you're in greater danger than you are, that people hate your guts, that things are everything's going to work out poorly. Um, everyone does these to a degree, um, but CBT. Um, recognize that people um, who are depressed and anxious do this far more often. But if you can, if you can intercede, not through the power of positive thinking, but through through developing the habits of going, wait a second, that's catastrophizing. Um, that thought right there is catastrophizing. This thought's mind reading. This thought's fortune telling. You can kind of talk yourself down. Um, and I'm living literally living proof because you know I, I really if you told me in 2007 i'd still be alive today i probably would have laughed at you because i i just assumed eventually my, my, i was going to kill myself um and i'm night and day different now I, and i also get you know i got help from um medications of like people who are depressed to be clear i'm not saying i just white knuckled this uh, but cbt really made a long-term difference to the way my uh, my happiness worked. Um, and while I was studying this, I was still working on free speech on campus. And I was looking at what was going on on campus and, and looking at the way administrators were constantly sort of exaggerating threats and assuming that students couldn't actually handle opinions that hurt their feelings and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, it almost seems like adults are saying, do catastrophize, do engage in emotional reasoning, do engage in all of these cognitive distortions. But at the time, I said, thank goodness, it doesn't look like the students themselves are, are listening. And some, and then suddenly, right around 2013, going into 2014, you started seeing students showing up on campus 
who, when they would talk about freedom of speech, were talking about it in a medicalized way, that, that not this speaker should be banned from campus because I don't like the speaker and I think the speaker's a bigot, saying, I don't think the speaker should come to campus because it will be literally psychologically harmful, usually to someone else on, ca on campus, um, and that will do permanent damage because everyone is going to be easily harmed by words. And I was like, oh, wow. So this thing that I've, I've, I've been afraid we're teaching a young generation it seems like this is getting through finally to the people who started showing up on campus around 2013 2014 so height and i got together uh, jonathan height and, and i just become friends because we actually share a, a similar kind of position in the culture war where we're, con we're constantly trying to you know referees to a degree being like you know get the right and left to actually talk to each other um, and we came up with an article in 2015 saying these same things that are that, that led to this uptick in uh, censorship on campus that was really noticeable in 2014-2015 are the same things that could actually um, are the same kind of mental habits that will make people anxious and depressed. So um, it got really, you know, the article, you know, was very well received at the time. Um, and then we fixed the whole problem. <laughs> just just kidding. Um, and things got much, much worse. Um, and so, you know, we, we were originally proud of the original article and we weren't planning to write a book, but then because things got worse, uh, we we decided to get together to write, write a, a book. Uh, by the way, I've always hated the title of Coddling of the American Mind. I opposed it both for the original article and for the book. I wanted to call it Disempowered because what I feel like what we're really doing is we're telling students that they are weaker and more fragile than they actually are, and that's disempowering. So in the book, we framed it as as if it's as if we were giving a generation of young people the worst possible advice, both from a wisdom tradition standpoint um, uh, and from a modern psychological standpoint. And so we, we set it up in the beginning as if a terror, like an idiotic guru is telling us um, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Um, always trust your feelings. And life is a battle between good people and evil people. And in the setup, we're kind of like, that's awful advice. And then we kind of turn around to the audience and go, so why are we telling young people uh, this? And of course, we're not saying we're explicitly telling young people this, but I feel like we're implicitly telling them that they are fragile, um, that uh, emotional discomfort is something that must immediately be addressed through outside interventions, as opposed to things like CBT, where you actually, just like all humans have have faced throughout, you know, as long as we've existed, um, things that, uh, that upset or, or discomfort us, you know, that's one of the reasons why Stoicism, Buddhism, all of these wisdom traditions have different techniques for talking yourself down. Nobody tells you, you know, worry more, be, be, be more panicked. But it seems like that's what we've been doing as a society. And of course, the last one, life is a battle between good people and evil people. Um, that's, uh, you know, that's something that I felt like I spent most of my life watching people get somewhat more sophisticated about the fact that, you know, like even that person I hate, um, there are things we agree on or we're both equally human and that actually, you know, everybody has both good and evil within them. Um, so suddenly getting back to this much more, um, although actually like much more almost religious kind of idea of uh, everything is just, um, you know, a, a battle between good people and, and, and evil people politically. And, and you see this on the left and the right as well. Um, so we wrote this book in 2018 um, and, and we fixed it all. 
sorry, <laughs> I'm making that joke again. Everything got much worse even after 2018. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I'm working on a book called Canceling of the American Mind, which is more about the huge, and I mean huge, increase of professors in particular, but also students I'm seeing getting fired, getting punished, getting expelled um, since all of this stuff really uh, started to accelerate around 2016, 2017. Do you think any of this is related to the fact that so many folks in our younger generations here have not had to endure the difficulties that your grandfather did or your dad did. And perhaps, you know, there's some that say that a better life leads to a weaker person and then, you know, uh, vice versa. Is any of that something that you've seen? Well, I do think that some of the ideological issues I, uh, aren't hitting schools that have a, a, a larger percentage of working class kids is, is not at all lost on me. Um, a lot of the ideological stuff um, the, the hot version of this, I'm seeing much more taking over schools that tend to have students that are overwhelmingly from the one from from the one percent. So um, I, I and I do think that some of that is um, uh, coming from environments where they uh, they haven't faced enough challenges to at least be able to disprove the idea that they're fragile, you know, to know for themselves that they can actually handle themselves. So I do think that's at least part of it. I do also think that it's because when you have environments that aren't politically diverse, there wasn't any pushback to the idea um, that uh, anything you can do to save your, your your children from discomfort or offense is good. There's, there's no downside to doing this um, because really it tends to be more on the conservative side that you're saying, oh, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta have some challenges, you gotta get some knocks, you gotta live through some difficult stuff. That can be dismissed in more left-leaning environments as more of a conservative way of thinking. But I think that both points of view actually tend to complement each other. They, they, they can be very healthy, but when there's no interaction between the two, you lose all of this wisdom tradition of, of, of the value of being challenged, the, the, the value of persevering, all of these kind of things that actually give you, and this is a very important term, um, a sense of your locus of control, that essentially that you can actually be self-directed, that you have self um, self-efficacy, that you can get things done in the real world, and that you have some influence over your own life. Meanwhile, what I feel like we're teaching some of these incredibly, oftentimes incredibly gifted kids, but who come from you know one percent background, is that they're um, they're too fragile to, to 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 make decisions on their own, that they're easily damaged forever, um, and then. Parents oftentimes with the best of intentions give them the impression that they can't really make decisions on their own, um, which is just not, uh, which is going to make you anxious and depressed if you believe that um, you can't hack it. How much of this is attributable to social media? I definitely think social media mostly took existing trends and sped them up. Mostly. I do think it created some new ones too, though. Um, when it comes to things like safetyism and that kind of stuff, I think that that was a trend that was sort of progressing along, you know, somewhat slowly. Um, and then, you know, in the age of Tumblr in particular, you know, it really, uh, um, it took on sort of like a life of its own and sped up. Polarization was already getting pretty bad around the time social media started exploding, 20, like 2007 on, um, and that's that sped that up. As far as phenomena though that cr it created that are new, um, I think that this is where cancel culture comes into a degree because it's it's partially the negative side of what otherwise could be seen as a good thing. So I, I go back to the oh, actually this is coming full circle a little bit. Um, remember how I talked about 
um, uh, studying the Tudor dynasty censorship. Well, that was all about the printing press, and the printing press was the original um, uh, disruptive technology. And that, from the point of view of 1521, you know, this thing was not worth it from the point of view of Henry VIII. Like this, it just creates discord. It tears people down. It tears institutions down. It tears religion down. It also, by the way, led to a huge increase in the witch trials. Although I'm sure that Henry VIII was probably, you know, somewhat supportive of that. Um, and but overwhelmingly, it probably just seemed like this infernal disruptive device. And I feel like that's kind of where we are with social media at the moment. And, and it's a way of reminding people that, you know, when you have a, a 12 million additional eyes on a problem like they did, think, thanks to the press, printing press, you can actually solve problems over the long time if you have rules on how you actually get closer to the truth. So I still think social media can have potentially um, great promise for actually improving the lot of the human race, but there's no way, but here's the bad news. There is no way that after a technology like this that introduce a billion new eyes to, to, to problems is not going to be incredibly disruptive. Um, there's no way out. There's no easy fix to this and, there, and there's no way out. And what those billion eyes mean is that any person, any idea or any institution can be torn down because with that much um, criticism, with that much uh, scrutiny, anything can be. Um, and there's some good news there. there. There were things that needed to be torn down. I mean, they, they, there were ideas that needed to be torn down. There were people like Harvey Weinstein who needed to be uh, 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 um, torn down. There were, you know, the, there were dictators that were torn down, you know, particularly in the early days of, 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 of the Arab Spring and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not like that. that's never good, um, but what we haven't figured out any way in which social media can build yet. And, and, I'm, and I do try to say, like, listen, we're, we as a species have to catch up to this technology and we have to develop new cultural ways of looking at it. Um, but in the meantime, it's, it's, it's havoc. So funny that you mentioned the printing press, because I was actually going to close with a question about an article that you recently wrote about New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a threat to any First Amendment principle, whether it's state action and the expansion of state action, whether it is the mm -hmm. actual malice requirement um, imposed in New York Times versus Sullivan, or is there none that you see? What is, from your perspective, the biggest threat to First Amendment kind of precedent today? I would say the biggest threat to First Amendment precedent is more long term than short term. I am worried about the threat to New York Times v. Sullivan, um, you know, and that's mostly coming from the right. But I have heard people on the left as well be critical of New York Times v. Sullivan, which 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 creates very high bars um, before you can find someone guilty of defaming um, a political figure. And I and I think that that's to me, that's one of the things that makes American law exceptional in the good way. Uh, now I get sometimes when people on the right are mad. Um, that there are cases where it seems like even that standard is met, that journalists engaged in um, a, they either showed reckless disregard for the truth or actually acted in knowing falsity. And I can understand being mad about that because, I, you know, when journalists actually knowingly make up stuff um, or or don't uh, or recklessly just avoid disproving themselves, that's not that isn't good for public trust. But I do think that the attempt to, you know, fix New York Times v. Sullivan will be disastrous for freedom of speech. But I am more concerned about the long term 
um, when it comes to freedom of speech in the United States. Because right now, at least when it comes to the law, we have um, judges who are pretty good on First Amendment and some who are great. Um, it's partially because in law schools, uh, there's been this, just like I said, like this thing going back to 1965, this slow motion train wreck where students at my own alma mater, they're, they're learning basically uh, that free speech is the argument of the bad people, not um, free speech is the argument that that is necessary to protect minority opinions. And I always I, I always have to explain this because like law students aren't learning this basic fact. Historically speaking, um, the, the so I get I, I talk about this uh, this misinformation that law students are receiving, where it, it seems like they're being taught from early age that free speech is the argument of the bully, the bigot, and the robber baron, the three Bs. And I'm like, okay, I got news for you: um, <laughs> robber barons, rich folk, rich and powerful folk, they do pretty well historically <laughs> because they're rich and powerful. Like, like wealth and power tends to uh, provide you a lot of protection. And when you start getting into democratic forms of government, you, uh, the majority, even if they're a bully or a bigot, they are protected by majority vote. You literally only need freedom of speech to protect minority points of view. Um, and the reason why this isn't getting through as much on campus is because on campus, a lot of the people who are in charge don't like to admit that they're powerful, they're popular, and they're in charge. Like they like to pretend they're still the underdog, even at schools that have, I don't know, $40 billion in the bank, um, <laughs> like Stanford. Um, so I, I do think that long, the long-term threat to freedom of speech is coming, unfortunately, from uh, many law schools themselves, I assume, though not, John Jay. Greg, this has been so great. I really appreciate you taking the time. What are you up to in the coming months and years? What are you going to be engaged in uh, moving forward? Well, you know, um, uh, expanding fire uh, is one of the things I'm most excited about um, as we expand off campus. Um, you know, getting us a world-class uh, litigation department. Um, the next thing that I have coming out is canceling of the American Mine, which should be out in October. Um, I'm pretty proud of how that came out because it's also an indictment of the way we argue as a society, not just not just cancel culture by itself. Um, and the next thing I want to work on um, for to trying to spread the word of freedom of speech is a comic book um, to try to explain some of these concepts in what, what was my you know first creative language. I'm, I'm a big comic book nerd. Great. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me.